Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the University of Sydney. My name is Duncan Iverson. I'm the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research here at the University of Sydney and welcome uh, to our campus and welcome to the wonderful social sciences building here on our Camperdown campus for tonight's uh, 2019 Michael Hintzey lecture. Before we begin, I just want to acknowledge that uh, we meet on the land of the Gadigal people. The Gadigal are the First Nations people on whom this part of the campus is built. Um, you know, and as we learn more, as I learn more about the deep history of this place, I'm always struck by the different elements of that history. So on the one hand, we have this extraordinary uh, Victoria Park. If you're coming onto campus off of Parramatta Road, there's that deep bowl in uh, Victoria Park. And that was a place where there was a lot of important ceremony, song, corroboree, also political <laughs> diplomacy between all the First Peoples in the Sydney region. And at the same time, right across the road, there's Boundary Lane, which is a street that many of you are familiar with in the local neighborhood. And of course, Boundary Lane, very old street in Sydney. Many Australian towns have them. And that was a, a street that Aboriginal people in the community tell me it was well understood they should not cross uh, after sundown. And there are people in the community who, within living memory, remember that boundary. So the deep history of this place, we have to kind of grasp both of those things uh, at the same time. Uh, and it's a legacy about which we're very deeply honored to continue to engage with and very proud to be in that long tradition of learning. So let me acknowledge the Gadigal people, the elders past, present, uh, and future. Well, it's wonderful to have you all here for such an important event in the life cycle of the Center for International Security Studies, which was established in 2006 through the extraordinary generosity of Sir Michael Hinsey. And I'm delighted that we have uh, Michael Hinsey's wife, Lady Dorothy Hinsey, here in the audience with us tonight. It's delightful to be able to share the event with the Hinsey family. And this extraordinary gift really enabled us to establish, I think, a, a, a new way, a new lens on international security studies. And through the leadership of a series of directors, but most recently and most importantly, uh, Professor James Adarian, who's here and will speak to you in a minute, we the gift has been able uh, enabled us to do a number of things. The first thing, of course, is conduct high quality research on foreign policy and security challenges, confronting not just Australia, but our, our region and our world. And at a time when the idea of a kind of pluralistic, multipolar foreign policy is increasingly hard to hold on to. It's never been more important to be studying and thinking about the past and future of that kind of security studies. It's also been a deeply multidisciplinary uh, project as well. And uh, Sir Michael's gift has enabled us to both do deep research and also policy-oriented research, <clears throat> traditional, non-traditional, emerging, established security challenges. And finally, it's been also about reaching out to you, reaching out to the broader community to engage the general public and the broader community in discussing and thinking about 
these pressing international security issues. We, our, our view is we take, uh, we take the knowledge and intelligence of our audiences seriously and, and you've responded and paid back by turning up to uh, events like tonight. And as I said, uh, yet again, we have an, a, a wonderful uh, a session for you. Uh, one of the best titles uh, of the year. Uh, uh, Dr. Parag uh, Khanna will be talking to us in a minute. And with that, I'd like to ask James to come forward and introduce our guest speaker, James. So thank you all for coming. I know there was other um, options today. Uh, there's this obscure local race called the Melbourne Cup, I heard. Uh, so thanks for coming and having a, a little flutter on the future. Um, I think it's very important um, this lecture, it might not stop a nation, but I think it really should give us some pause and opportunity to challenge what's become conventional thinking. Conventional thinking in national security circles, certainly, um, about what's going to be the global strategic race of the future. And I just want to quote from an earlier lecture. This is the fourth annual HINSA lecture. And um, this was the opening of that lecture. So fourth would be back in uh, 2010. And the opening uh, statement was, I would like to argue tonight that Australians should be worried about China's rise because it is likely to lead to an intense security competition between China and the United States with considerable potential for war. Moreover, most of China's neighbors, to include India, Japan, Singapore, South Korea, Russia, Vietnam, and yes, Australia, will join with the United States to contain China's power. To put it bluntly, China cannot rise peacefully. So said the distinguished scholar from the University of Chicago, some of you might have guessed by now, John Mearsheimer. Uh, so he said again when he returned to Sydney in 2019 uh, with a similar talk on uh, Australia's choice in the US-China conflict. And so he's been saying practically every year in between. This is a recurrence in the way that realism uh, creates these self-fulfilling prophecies. So, um, and he's not alone. The most, I think, um, recent account of this comes from the uh, also esteemed scholar from Harvard, Graham Allison, recently published a book called Thucydides' Trap, about how it's inevitable that a rising power will eventually confront a declining power and create fear in that power, and it will lead to war. And this is now almost a new consensus, and it crosses the usual left-right political divides, and it also bridges the usual distance between the realist and idealist camps in, in our field of international security. Now, the CIS mission is um, to challenge this you know, conventional wisdom. We pride ourselves in using critical thinking to address the most pressing global issues, security issues. And so, I'm very, very happy today to have with us, I think, one of the most iconoclastic and yet influential thinkers um, who challenges the consensus view. Dr. Parikada was uh, born in India, um, Kanpur. He is um, educated at Georgetown University, and he was awarded his PhD uh, in, at LSE. I have the good fortune to have read that, and where I first put you on my radar was because it was on diplomacy, a topic that we share. Um, Rather than take the usual route then, which is usually a postdoc at a university or a governmental role, Dr. Khanna did something unusual. He went and retraced the Silk Route, the, the Silk Road that you know, Marco Polo had traveled. He did it, I think, by VW Bug. He did it by horseback. There might have been a camel involved, by foot, by bicycle. 
And he subsequently retraces this route. He's someone who lives his creed in, en route. He always interviews from the top down, bottom up, to get an on-the-ground perspective on what's happening in Asia. Unlike people like some of my colleagues at Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Chicago, Illinois, who rarely get out beyond you know, a speaking tour and the local hotels. So um, this is why we're particularly honored to have um, Dr. Parakana with us today. He's been a fellow at uh, the European Council on Foreign Relations, distinguished scholar at the Monk Center, University of Toronto. He's also uh, been at the New America Foundation, the National University of Singapore. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, he has many other um, esteemed qualities, but anybody who can write six books in, I think, 10 years uh, not only deserves our respect, but creates a lot of envy. Uh, he has a lot of admirers. He has a wide audience. I believe 650,000 followers on Facebook. Um, he's a regular commentator on CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera. Um, and he does have vocal critics, and that means we're going to be in for an interesting evening. Um, also, um, this evening, we were very fortunate to have, uh, for the interview section, we're going to have a 30-minute presentation. Then we're going to have um, some short an interview. Um, we're very fortunate to have leading this, Siobhan Morgan McFarlane, who will um, might be familiar to you or certainly familiar to anybody who listens to Eastside FM 89.7. I think it's the best news magazine on radio today. Um, she is the producer, the writer, the host, and she also spins incredible music in between the um, various sessions. Um, I highly recommend it. It's called Another World. And uh, we're very lucky to have her here today, even though she does have a master's of international affairs from ANU, we will not hold that against her. So. Thank you very much for coming. So with that, please join me in um, giving Dr. Parakana a very warm Sydney welcome. Thank you. Hey. Thank you. Thank you, James. This book is, is not, you know, sort of meant to be an academic book. And often what happens is in, in any case, to the extent that there is an academic underpinning, you're forced to really bury it, you know, in the footnotes or an appendix or something. But I do want to say a couple, say a couple of words about that, because when I was in, uh, in London and sort of absorbing this English school approach, uh, a lot of the things that I learned then and studied then really did radiate, uh, you know, two decades later into what this book has become. Because there is a great strength, a great virtue uh, to what is probably the most sort of holistic and syncretic of, of international relations theory uh, methodologies. Uh, for example, one of my early uh, supervisors, uh, Barry Buzan, if you're a student here, you've probably read some of his work, is really one of the only scholars in the last 20 years to make a very conscious approach to bring together Western and Eastern scholars to look for common ground and how people from these different academic backgrounds and civilizations view the world and construct theories of how the global system operates. And he was also one of the only scholars to take the region very seriously as a level of analysis. You know, we very often, something that I've critiqued from my first book to this one, we jump from the idea of the nation, you know, whether it's a small European state or the United States, to the global level. With dis by and dismiss the geographic level um, 
and the gravity in between that is represented by your immediate regional environment. And yet, we know throughout history how important the regional context is in shaping any particular state's behavior. And the, um, and the third is, I've used this word already now, is the actual meaning of the word system. We just use the word system as if we understand what it means. But actually, um, in IR theory more generally, and certainly in the English school, we make an effort to try to quantify what it means when we use that word system. It can mean, uh, in particular, the gravity, the intensity of relations between a set of countries. Um, and they don't have to necessarily be neighbors. It can even be at the global level. Things like the Commonwealth used to be a system, right? The NATO alliance is a system. The European Union is a system. Now, now I'll get into uh, why all of this matters for this book, because really the words Asia and system have never occurred next to each other in any international relations scholarship. If they had, I may not have bothered to write this book at all. The fact is that I, at least my intuition before beginning this project, was that there is the beginnings or semblance of a resurrection of an Asian system. And I'm going to try and demonstrate to you today what that looks like. But importantly, I just want to uh, you know, highlight the fact that I use the word resurrection, right? Because there have been periods of history very clearly where Asia was a system. We would not be able to use a term like Silk Roads were it not for the fact that 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 500 years ago, Asians had more to do with each other than with the rest of the world. It's only in the early 16th century with the rise of uh, European colonialism in the Asian region where Asian societies, as you know, disparate as they still were given the rudimentary technologies of the day, began to be pulled apart from each other and those silk roads began to become more fragmented and Asian societies came to have more intense relations with their colonial masters, uh, and then in the 20th century with the US or the Soviet Union in the Cold War context, then with each other. So the I spend the early part of the book kind of reconstructing the sort of 4,000 year history of Asian sort of relations through the lens of three forces, commerce, conflict, and culture, and arguing that it's in the last 500 years where colonialism, the Cold War, disrupted those patterns of relations between Asians, but particularly in the last 30 years, they've begun to reconstitute. Why is the last 30-year period in particular uh, significant? I see a lot of young people in this room who probably won't be able to answer the question where they were on November in the 9th, 1989. So in other words, 30 years ago, day after day after tomorrow. Okay, raise your hand if you do remember where you were on November 9th, 1989. Not all that many. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, what happened in November. Okay, a few more. That's good. So, it was the day the Berlin Wall fell, right? And so, a couple of days from now, uh, play maybe on Siobhan's radio show, certainly on television, you're going to see a lot of iconic imagery of uh, what happened on that day. It certainly shaped my entire life because uh, shortly after the wall fell, almost immediately, I went straight to Berlin. My parents said, go live this moment. And we went and we saw the wall coming down. We actually rented hammers and chisels and hacked away at it ourselves. And I was in the eighth grade. So all, all of my subsequent decisions about sort of my becoming a geopolitical junkie sort of uh, began when I was just uh, 12 years old. So it's a perfect point to mark because from 1989 to 1981, 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union, 
been almost three decades. And it's very easy for any of us who've grown up and you know lived in and, and been sort of you know uh, operating in a Western society to think about what the major milestones have been or episodes that have shaped the last 30 years of our Western experience. It's gone by in the blink of an eye, really. Collapse of the Soviet Union, the Balkan Wars, uh, tensions with Russia over uh, you know NATO expansion, uh, the 9/11 terrorist attacks, the invasions of Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, um, the uh, the financial crisis, um, uh, Arab Spring, uh, Brexit, and Trump. Right. So there you go. Thirty years of history in one sentence. Right. Um, you know, nowhere in that, right? When we when we think about that, that's that's been the experience. That's what the world has been about the last thirty years. Not true, right? Because very little of those episodes have a significant bearing on the lives of about four, four and a half billion people, the majority of the world population that is Asian. Uh, for those billions of people, the last 30 years have very different set of uh, characteristics and drivers. And it's largely been about this resurrection of the Asian system that existed centuries prior. So now let me get into that story, uh, you know, mostly now the kind of empirical story of this Asian system. So see, I've gotten the theory and the history out of the way. Now let's get into the sort of, you know, real world of today. The first is a geographic point. I, I want to be a real stickler about this because I do have some training in geography and no two geographers in the world actually disagree about what the sort of definition of Asia is. By, you know, the, the way map projections work by necessity. I've got Scandinavia and Western Europe here, but we left the names of those countries off lest one think that Italy is part of Asia. But here, the majority of this map is dominated by the countries of Asia. And I wanted to emphasize here, of course, that the so-called Middle East, you know, particularly the Persian Gulf countries that we have referred to as the Middle East by and large, are really West Asia from a geographic standpoint. They always have been West Asia. They always will be West Asia. And the Anatolian Peninsula, Turkey, that too is Asia. Most of Russia is Asia. Indian subcontinent, obviously, as well. And I, you know, I'm mindful, of course, that we are here in Australia and very often people get very upset uh, down here, down under, when uh, the full Australia is not depicted on the map. Again, blame the cartographer only for the way in which the projection was done. But Australia, I think, of very much as uh, belonging to this Asian system, even if from a uh, a, a sort of geological tectonic plate standpoint, you might say it isn't exactly Asia. We'll get into that, of course, um, in due course. So, the, why is this important to understand the the uh, the role of geography? Well, it's because when we talk about Asia in the last twenty years of, uh, of of you know academic literature, policy literature, you tend to get books that are out of you know. 400 pages, 398 are about China, and about two pages are devoted to the other, say, 3 billion people of Asia, sometimes even less than that. And I thought that was somewhat problematic because that's not really the full Asia. And it leads to a whole lot of, you know, a uh, uh, sort of uh, logical errors and strategic errors. For example, believing that, you know, 
if China has a growing influence in the Pacific Rim, therefore it has dominated Asia. Well, it in fact has not because Asia is much bigger than just the Pacific Rim. It's an obvious example of the kind of oversights uh, that are committed. And it obviously leads to historical misunderstandings about how Asian powers have related to each other because there is this very long history of relations between uh, subcontinental uh, India, between the Central Asian, uh, Turkic civilizations. Russia has had a very important role in Asia historically as well and so forth. So to understand Asia means to think about all of these civilizations and not view it purely in a Sinocentric context uh, as we do today. Now, let's talk about that last 30 years and what have been sort of the major uh, uh, trends that lead me to argue that there is a system-like quality to Asia, despite its incredible diversity. And the first and most obvious is trade. When we want to measure a system, we look at the intensity of trade between countries, their, how, what kinds of diplomatic relations they have with each other, how much they invest in each other, whether they have uh, tension and conflict with each other. These are all characteristics of a system. I should point out, by the way, that a system doesn't have to be peaceful. You know, over the course of this evening, we're going to have a lot of discussion about war and peace and conflict and geopolitical rivalries. All of that is evidence of a system. It's not evidence that I'm wrong in claiming that there's a system. A system does not have to be peaceful. The best evidence that you have a system is war between the members of a system. And this is an extremely important distinction that we make when we're studying systems in IR theory. If you just have a bunch of countries that are neighbors, but have nothing to do with each other, they share a geography, but they're not a system. If you think about Europe, we say, well, today Europe is a system, it's a peaceful system, but Europe has been a system for many, many, many centuries, and it's been a warlike system. It's only very recently become a peaceful system, but the fact is it remains a system. So now, even as we discuss all of the conflicts that exist and will potentially break out in this region, let us not forget that that is, does not mean that it is not a system. It is the evidence that there are these frictions and dynamics between countries that are evidence of how intense their relations with each other have become, indeed more important than their relations with the rest of the world. And that's actually what this slide suggests. One data point is just the volume of trade. Now, I mentioned that 500 years of history has transpired in which Asians have been largely separated from each other, untangled from each other due to colonialism and the Cold War. It's it took only 25 of the last 30 years from 1992 to roughly 2006 or uh, 2016, right? It took le less than a, a quarter century for Asia to overturn 500 years of this division and to arrive at this map, this infographic, where you see that the volume of trade between Asian countries totals by far more than Asia trades with the rest of the world, right? That's all it took is a generation for these countries to more or less recreate the Silk Roads, physically through infrastructure, trade liberalization, all of the complementarities that Asians have with each other. And that's so much of what economics is about, is optimizing land, labor, and capital. And if you think about the countries on this map, you have the West Asian colored in pink here, the Persian Gulf, uh, Arabian Gulf, uh, oil and gas producers. Starting in the 1990s, they massively shifted their export orientation uh, away from the West towards East Asia, because that's when India and China in particular were rising. And so by the mid-1990s, already Arab countries were exporting far more oil and gas east than West. And we call that the sort of Indian Ocean or the maritime Silk Roads, in a way, were, were recreated 
through this, uh, what, what economists call the commodities uh, super cycle. You also had um, the sort of uh, the, the early phases of rebuilding the infrastructural linkages that we now call Belt and Road. But as James uh, uh, mentioned, this is what I wrote my first book about. Uh, so this is going back more than 15 years, where I, where, when we talk about Chinese infrastructure projects in Central Asia, like Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan today, as if they've just been laid down, well, they've actually been being built since the day the Soviet Union collapsed. For about 30 years, these projects have been underway. I, there were so many of them going on that I was able to write an entire book about it more than a decade ago. So there's not, almost nothing new in some ways in that. It's all part of this process of rebuilding the Asian system. And that has allowed energy trade, agricultural trade, uh, industrial trade, uh, technology trade, flows of finance uh, and of people to accelerate over the last uh, couple of decades. So if you take any blue line on this map, you could go back uh, 15 years, 10 years, five years to the present, and you'd see that all of those numbers keep on going up because these complementarities are very, very strong across Asian economies. So we're already at a point where in terms of measuring, again, the systemness right, of Asia. Asians already trade way more with each other than the rest of the world. Now, this is so important because Donald Trump really should have known this, right, prior to launching a trade war. I'm going to give you some more uh, evidence around that. Now, let me come back to the point around why it's important to think about Asia as Asia, not just China. I remember presenting the Chinese edition of this book in in, um, in Beijing in uh, June of this year, and um, and they said, "Oh, you know, we like." They said, "We like the title of your book. Uh, you know, the future is Asian." You're saying this is this is a Chinese world. I said, "No, it's the Asian world, not the Chinese world. China is a part of Asia, but it is not all of Asia." So I feel I need to clarify, you know, a bit of. A, a bit more around international economic history and how important it is to get this story right, because the Asian story or 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 uh, kind of um, rehabilitation that brought us to this moment we're at today really began after World War II, and then of course it was not. China as the central economic fact of Asia, but it was, of course, Japan that led Asia's rebound. It took only 25 years from the end of World War II, 30 years, for Japan to overtake what was then West Germany uh, to become the world's second largest economy, only 30 years. And that industrialization and modernization of Japan is what inspired the tiger economies, right? And I refer to that as the second wave of growth, the tiger economies being South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and uh, and Singapore. So the first two waves of Asian modern economic growth have nothing whatsoever to do with China. In fact, by this point, to be perfectly fair and, uh, and almost neutral about it, as you well know, in the 1970s, China is still reeling from the uh, Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. It's still a very poor peasant society at this point, 40 years ago, more or less uh, now. And then you get 1979, right? You get the uh, 1978, 1979, the reforms, uh, which allowed for Shenzhen, for example, to become China's first special economic zone, allowing in foreign investment. Then China uh, begins to uh, you know, make those early steps to become the factory floor of the world. It builds uh, large trade surpluses and currency reserves and so forth. And the rest is sort of history. So China joins this story as the third wave of modern Asian economic growth. But now let me interject a geopolitical point, because when we think about how 
the relationship between geopolitics and geoeconomics, we tend to privilege the geopolitics and we say, well, these countries are still deep-seated historical rivals um, and therefore you know, they can never contribute to each other's uh, uh, growth. That's not at all true, not even remotely true. Nothing could be more false, come to think of it. Because of course, how did China get to be China? You would not have China as the superpower that we know today if it weren't for, of course, Japan and the Tigers. Because who have been the largest by far, most loyal, most reliable, most consistent investors in China in the last 40 years? It's the countries that we think of as its deep-seated historically, um, uh, uh, deep-seated rivals, right? Of course, Japan in, in particular, Korea as well, uh, Singapore and so forth, right? So you have not a story of these rival blocks. What you have is a story of mutually beneficial, mutually reinforcing waves of growth where um, more modern and wealthier economies invest in the poor, less developed um, uh, labor pools, uh, if you will. And that was China at the time. Now, here's the, now, we've got the first three waves of modern Asian growth, and this is for far too many people. And in terms of that consensus that James was referring to, which is not just a geopolitical one that centers on China, but also an economic one, this is where the story ends. Right, you know, if China equals Asia, if China is slowing down, well, then that's the end of the Asian story. Also false. So a big part of my argument is that we are now entering this fourth wave of uh, of Asian growth. We have entered in many ways this fourth wave, and it's comprised of all of these countries colored in orange, from Pakistan through India, Southeast Asia. Now, notice the population figure. You're talking about 2.5 billion. People. And these are the 2.5 billion, among others, who just get left out, oops, of just about every book about Asia. It's just unconscionable. And I say it not as, as someone who happened to have been born in India. I say it just as a sort of objective fact, right? And now we're realizing, wait a minute, you know, here are two and a half billion people. The median age of every uh, society, color and orange, is, is younger, in many cases, substantially younger than China's. The growth rates of some of these countries are faster than China's, well, not surprisingly, given that they're smaller economies starting from a lower base. But if you take these countries together, right, of these two and a half billion people, if they were to grow at only half the rate that China has, because China has that spectacular growth, 30 years straight, 10% growth, um, if they grow at only 5%, between now and the next 10 years, they will equal China's present GDP, right? And China is in PPP terms already the largest economy in the world. So we've just been blithely ignoring this entire set of, of sub-regions of Asia that are very core to Asia, um, that are critical to understanding its economic and its geopolitical uh, uh, future. So I've, you know, we've talked about a few anniversaries already. We've got the 40th, uh, 40 years since China opened its economy, uh, 70 years, uh, of course, since the founding of the modern uh, Chinese Republic, 30 years since the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall. The anniversary that matters a lot to Asians from an economic standpoint is the Asian financial crisis. That was 20 years ago, right? 1997, 1998, 1999. Now, the, the Asian economies have spent much of the last 20 years just trying to make sure that they never have another episode or, or crisis as they did uh, during, during the Asian financial crisis. So they have been focused on some of the very kind of fundamental uh, economic reforms around trying to shore up their, uh, their trying to balance their current account, trying to build up uh, trade surpluses, build currency reserves, move towards flexible exchange rates, all of these things. And they've largely succeeded at that 
such that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which to, to Southeast Asians is the great kind of bogeyman because of the conditionality imposed upon them during that Asian crisis, uh, the IMF no longer has any substantial presence in, in any important economy of Asia. There's a, there's a bailout now for, for Pakistan, but that is uh, a fraction of the volume of the bailout for, let's say, Argentina. Right. So the IMF is not really a major factor. So from the Asian point of view, it's sort of mission accomplished in terms of undertaking the kinds of um, reforms that are necessary to grow as individual countries, but also to sort of coalesce into uh, into a sort of a successful uh, economic region and continue to develop those complementarities with each other. They continue to do a lot of important things around economic uh, privatization. Some of the policies, by the way, that they rejected earlier merely because they were Western, right? Merely because they were forced upon them. They now recognize, well, this is actually a very sensible template no matter what part of the world you are in. So, um, so that's a very important example, and I'll give you more in time, of the kind of learning effects where smart Asian countries are those that don't live in this mental um, sort of duality between accepting the West versus rejecting the West. The successful countries simply view the world as a set of uh, a menu, really, of policies from which you can learn and adopt and absorb to guide your own future uh, uh, reforms. So where do we stand today? Well, according to... Um, uh, HSBC, Standard Chartered, and other financial institutions, if you measure the world economy in purchasing power parity terms, Asia is already 50% or more of global GDP. So it is in GDP what it already is demographically uh, as well. And of course, you have the largest uh, sovereign wealth funds, you have multiple you know, nuclear arsenals, you have the largest mega cities, um, you know, um, uh, very high uh, financial market capitalization, number of unicorns, uh, you know, technology and venture capital spending, and on and on and on and on. So much of this is already now concentrated in Asia. At the governmental level, you have sovereign wealth funds increasingly co-investing in each other's countries. You have banks uh, creating more liquidity for, for trade and trade finance between uh, each other's countries and on and on it goes. When it comes to trade, one of the most important things, you have um, the, the evolution of trade liberalization from within ASEAN, ASEAN plus three. Just yesterday, we had the RCEP uh, negotiations as part of the... Um, the, the summit going on in Bangkok, they didn't manage to uh, ratify the RCEP. India has decided to, uh, to to pull out. But you still have this process of, of you actually have about 20 different ongoing bilateral or sub-regional trade liberalization agreements within Asia, even if RCEP gets, uh, gets, gets pushed off. And that, of course, represents the largest share of global GDP in a single uh, uh, trade framework. So all of these things are sort of moving along in terms of this Asianization of Asia, uh, as I call it. So you have, a, you have a geographical system, increasingly an economic system within Asia. You can see it from a demographic standpoint as well, because when you talk about complementarities between countries, what matters is not just what they can do with each other economically, but also demographically. Now, very often when, when, uh, when we talk about Asia uh, from, a, from a Western standpoint, we say, well, Asia is aging, because again, we reduce Asia to Japan, Korea, and coastal China. Uh, but in fact, when you think about uh, Asia demographically, the full Asia, you also have most of the world's young people 
And even in China, of course, you have as many young people below the median age as you have old people or older people above the median age. And the median age is about 45, 46. So not everyone who we call old is actually all that old. Um, so, And of course, because the population of China is so large, you have actually 700 million people below that median age. So in other words, China still has more young people than all of Europe has people. So we have to take it with a grain of salt when people just say, oh, Asia's aging, it's going to collapse. Because that is one of these conventional wisdom things. You can write an entire book saying that and it'll be a bestseller in the United States. This is why I want to put a gun to my head, like, you know, when I have to deal with this kind of like oversimplification. So in Asia, in fact, because you have so many people, you still have a lot more young people than you have old people. And this is very, very important because you can see greater migration flows, right? You can measure this in terms of tourists, students, business travelers, and so on and so forth. And Asians travel much more within Asia than they do outside of Asia. So again, you can be on the streets of New York or London or in you know, Interlaken, Switzerland, and you'll feel like, oh my goodness, it's overrun by Chinese and Japanese. I'm not being very politically correct here. Um, uh, however, just remember, Asians actually, it's a lot cheaper for Asians to travel within Asia, and they do a lot more of that. And that is part of this process of, uh, of Asian societies sort of getting to know each other better uh, in ways that have not been, been possible or not been undertaken in decades, if not in, uh, in centuries. So all of this is being made possible, obviously, because of urbanization, economic growth, uh, you know, uh, uh, in, in many ways, barriers to entry, borders, visa requirements and restrictions coming down. So here's another part of the global conventional wisdom, right? Walls and borders are going up everywhere, right? And, you know, the examples that will be cited will be, you know, Trump's wall within, on Mexican border, Brexit, and whatever, you know, Serbia is doing. And so sort of, that's not exactly the whole planet Earth last time I checked, right? Because if you look at the country and the continents that have the most people, you have this week an African uh, negotiation, for example, to have a continental free trade and free mobility zone of 1.2 billion people. Here in Asia, you've got several billion people. Every single country in Asia has made it easier for people to come to, to travel. Uh, I remember spending hundreds of dollars to get visas um, back in the day to go to you know, Vietnam uh, and, and countries like that. Now, pretty much every country is visa on arrival. Right. And most Asian countries now have these uh, entrepreneur visas. Right. Very easy to apply for and get. Uh, you can stay five years in, uh, in a country, uh, even countries that are hard to migrate into, like Singapore. Uh, pretty much no questions asked. Come stay five years, start a business, work somewhere. And you know, see what contribution you make to the country, uh, and and if you remain employable, and if you if you do, you can continue to extend and renew those things. Those things weren't possible, and clearly, it's a sign that when we have conversations about trends in globalization and presuming that globalization is backtra backtracking and receding and retrenching, I, I don't see that in Asia. Do you? And if you do, I'd love to hear your evidence, right? Because it certainly wouldn't stack up. Uh, it would have the weight of a feather. Uh, compared to the evidence that Asia is in many ways driving an internal globalization across this mega region, and of course is uh, is externalizing very strongly. I'm going to come to that very very soon. There's just a view basically that globalization is what happens basically from New York and London outbound, and if it's not that, therefore it is deglobalization. You know, and uh, that's just no longer in the same spirit of my not believing that we should use the term Middle East anymore because it doesn't really it's not a geographically useful phrase and it doesn't really explain what's happening in West Asia versus North Africa. 
we really shouldn't view globalization as something that that only happens if uh, you know if the Trump administration allows it. Right? There's all manner of globalization that is continuing to unfold all the time uh, if we choose not to use only a narrow uh, lens. Let me stick just one or two more points around how this Asian story is unfolding. Now, I mentioned that it was the the Japanese first wave and the, and the Tiger second wave that helped to launch, in a way, the Chinese third wave of Asian growth. And now this fourth wave of Asian growth is also being driven by wave one, wave two, and wave three, because the largest investors in South and Southeast Asia, the largest investors in India, in Pakistan, in Vietnam, in Indonesia, in Thailand, are, of course, other Asian countries, right? So again, instead of viewing uh, what's happening within this Asian system purely through the lens of territorial rivalry, we should appreciate that they're actually constantly developing and deepening their internal uh, integration. And this is what this, uh, this chart is showing you. What, I'm do what I've done here is to juxtapose the, um, the median age of a country and its ranking and score in what's called the Economic Complexity Index that kind of measures the sophistication of an economy in terms of the, the, the quality of the goods that it produces. And what you see is that the countries on the upper right, uh, Japan, Korea, and Singapore, they are the old countries uh, of Asia, the Asian societies. And in the middle, you have clustered there uh, those countries that are actually the, in, in the fourth wave, your uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, India, Philippines, Malaysia, Thailand, and so forth, and China. And what has happened is exactly the pattern that we've seen historically, not just in Asia, but very much in Europe as well, which is that the old, aging wealthy countries start to invest more in the younger uh, populous countries and they offshore their uh, their manufacturing, their supply chains and so forth to them and help to sponsor their rapid economic modernization. So this helps you understand why when you pick up the newspaper and you read about say, you know, Samsung has just doubled the size of its chip and, uh, you know, uh, handset production in Vietnam or Toyota is building ever more cars in Thailand and, and Indonesia. This is why, right? Those, those uh, anecdotes that you read about every day are part of a broader story of what I like to call, if you're not an economist, I'm not either, I play one on TV, uh, but, uh, but I call it adopt a country, right? Basically what happens, and this is what exactly what happened in Europe over the last 25 years, is that the old uh, you know, the, the, the aging and high labor cost Western European countries pick their favorite Eastern European countries from the Eastern Bloc, former Soviet Union, uh, Warsaw Pact nations to divert their own investment to to help to kind of develop those economies. And that's what's also what's happened in Asia is this adopt a country, uh, in some cases, multiple countries. So again, it's Chinese money, Korean money, Japanese money, Singaporean money is all over this middle cluster of Asian countries. And it's all of them investing in the poorest countries off to the left hand side, like Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, uh, and so forth. And you can fully expect this pattern to continue where Asians will deepen their integration because of the demographic and technological complementarities that we have that we have so it's all well and good to have this kind of you know armchair geopolitical consensus that's authored by people who don't know a lot about economics or about technology and view everything through, the, through a structural realist prism. When you look at the real world, how the real world has always operated and operates today, it tells you a very different story. So I just don't know how we get away with this sort of theoretical murder, you know? And, uh, and so I'm, you know, part of me is out to correct that, even though I promise not to make this talk all that theoretical. Now, let me get into uh, Belt and Road, something that is, um, you know, front and center 
And this is, you know, globalization with Asian characteristics, right? Globalization, Chinese style, some may say. And uh, what's critical to understand here is that everything, every single thing that's associated with Belt and Road is globalization. So you can't possibly, on the one hand, agree that, um, you know, Belt and Road is the largest coordinated infrastructure investment program in human history, uh, spanning more than 100 countries on all continents, and then talk about deglobalization, and globalization is collapsing. Because you literally will get on two different pages of the Financial Times on the same day those contradictory impulses. That's just unacceptably, um, you know, hypocritical, right? So Belt and Road is one of the major drivers of globalization today. But just to remind everyone that Belt and Road existed before it had a name, right? Belt and Road was born the day the Soviet Union collapsed. For 30 years, Asians have been building these infrastructure corridors with each other. Japan has been the major financier, the Asian Development Bank, even the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. And now you have China's Belt and Road adding more ammunition, a bazooka, you might say, in terms of the, 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 the capital value of lending and investment that's helping to finance all of these uh, highways and railways and internet cables and, uh, and electricity grids between Asian countries. Now, remember, in this rectangle live about 5 billion people, right? The majority of the world population lives just in this rectangle. You don't even need a big spherical globe to understand, you know, kind of the, the demographic center of gravity and why it is that if you take a bunch of countries, many of which are uh, post-colonial, obviously, so very little new infrastructure investment in the last, say, 70, 75 years, or post-Soviet republics, the, the ones of Central Asia that are landlocked, they're desperate to have all of this new infrastructure investment, even if it carries a certain amount of potentially unsustainable debt, because they simply cannot participate in the world economy, even trade more with their neighbors, if it if not for more infrastructure investment. And so it's actually no surprise to me, though, again, we have left very quickly in, in generally speaking, in our Anglo-American narrative towards a very cynical view of Belt and Road, two things. Number one, if you look at it, if you for just a simple view of geography, most of what China has motiv motivated China's investments in Belt and Road infrastructure here across terrestrial Eurasia is because of the so-called Malacca trap. And the Malacca trap is a ancient problem in geopolitics, right? How do you circumvent these these choke points, these maritime choke points? Now, China in the 1990s became the largest importer of commodities in the world. Go back to my first slide with the pink countries of West Asia exporting oil to East Asia. It all goes through here, right? South of India, through the Indian Ocean and through the Straits of Malacca and up here. And it became the largest exporter of finished goods in the world, right? All of our uh, electronics and gizmos started to become made in China. So China didn't want to be beholden to this little Malacca trap. And they said, well, let's start to build these infrastructures across Central Asia. So we have diversification of our supply chains, a perfectly logical and noble and sensible objective. And indeed, actually, I feel quite validated. The Economist just two weeks ago did a whole article saying China's supposedly imperialist Belt and Road looks quite defensive in nature. I never thought I would see The Economist uh, you know, write something like that because they are so cynical about anything and everything that, that, that China does. And it shouldn't surprise you either that two very American entities, the Rand Corporation, of course, a military funded think tank, and Citigroup, an American investment bank, have both done econometric analyses of the uh, impact of the investment of uh, Belt and Road projects and transportation infrastructure on the trade 
uh, volumes and exports for individual developing countries that participate in Belt and Road. And they have actually used this phrase win-win. And win-win is straight out of Xi Jinping's uh, lexicon. Um, and yet you've got American firms, again, not the political consensus of people who don't understand you know, how infrastructure, supply chains, investment and trade work, but rather people who actually follow what's happening on the ground and measure it. Those people say, well, this has been incredibly good for Turkmen for uh, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and and quite a few other countries. So we can get into the specific episodes of debt traps like Sri Lanka or countries like Laos and so on. We can get into to those. But the future of building and financing infrastructure across Eurasia does not hinge on what happens in Laos, right? Uh, the fact is that it's a much, much broader set of countries. And by and large, it's an overall positive experience. And that's why it continues to, to, uh, to reinforce itself. Now, there's a very strong geopolitical characteristic to all of this, not just China's defensive slash, you know, sort of uh, 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 neo, neo-mercantile uh, aspirations. But also it's the fact that we've been making these linear projections about how Belt and Road would play out. If China builds something, it owns it, therefore it owns the country. It's bought the country, right? That's the end of the sovereignty of that country. But what we've forgotten is that there are reactions to actions. There are feedback loops all the time. And three years ago, just three years ago, when we were um, you know, hyperventilating about the neo-imperialist Chinese plot known as Belt and Road, we forgot that it would inspire and motivate what I call the infrastructure arms race. And a chunk of this book is about that infrastructure arms race, where you see how suddenly Japan and India and the European Union have just announced that they're going to do big set of, um, of infrastructure, sustainable infrastructure finance projects. They want to compete to provide the lowest cost of borrowing for developing countries to build their infrastructure so that those countries don't become dependent on China. The United States has launched a whole new government agency fusing together a few others to also get involved in this infrastructure arms race. So suddenly, the, all of the countries on this map have a choice. It's not just China or nothing, right? It's not just a debt trap and uh, neo-colonialism or nothing. Now you have an entire marketplace of infrastructure finance um, from which to choose. And that means that, that in fact, it is win-win in the end, and that it's not a, a sort of, sort of you know, China-only kind of picture. And we've evolved very, very quickly uh, from a situation where people viewed Belt and Road as a purely unilateral hegemonic exercise into uh, a process, a pattern that, in my view, is going to restore the geopolitical structure that Asia has largely had for 4,000 years, which is not to be dominated by China, but to be multipolar. Because what is happening already in a very short amount of time is that countries, whether they're borrowing from China or borrowing from someone else, are using this infrastructure investment to modernize and to grow and to gain confidence, to pay, pay down their debts, so that and to become more confident so that they can actually resist Chinese encroachment. And so that explains why, independent of each other, um, there's been a renegotiation over the status of the uh, of the Chinese leased port in Sri Lanka. In the new Malaysian government, which is actually the old government of Mahathir, has come in and you know they were able to they just ripped up Chinese plans for the East Coast Railway. Uh, even countries with very little leverage, like Myanmar have been able to renegotiate down their debt to China. Pakistan, which had a $60 billion package with the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, that's been brought down to under $30 billion. So country after country is saying, wait a minute, we don't want to fall into a debt trap. We actually just came out of centuries of colonialism, and we don't want to go back to that. 
right? And there's this historical memory combined with geopolitical competition that is enabling these countries to navigate their way in dealing with China such that you will actually not have a unipolar landscape, but in, you'll in fact re restore in many ways Asian multipolarity. You can see it in the geopolitical alignments as well with the Quad, something that Australia is obviously an active um, participant in. Japan, Australia, India um, and the United States, uh, forging various kinds of military, particularly naval cooperation, and even helping secondary uh, countries, such as the littoral uh, countries of the South China Sea, like the Philippines and Vietnam and Indonesia, to strengthen their capability to uh, to defend uh, their uh, their interests. So overall, I see a picture where you know, if you think about geopolitics absent the complexity that the, the James specializes in, right, with the kind of quantum view of uh, feedback loops, when you take, when you ignore that stuff, you just take this view of, well, China built it, it owns it, therefore you get a unipolar world and China replaces America and that's the end of the conversation. Whereas if you have a complexity kind of approach and you view all the feedback loops that are materializing as a result of what China does and others do, you come to very different conclusions about the structure uh, of, of Asian power and of, and of global uh, power. So uh, final couple of points, global governance. Um, you know, we, to, if in our global governance discourse, it's pretty much, you know, for the last 25 years been about... Um, you know, Western-centric institutions, the post-Cold War Bretton Woods institutions in the United Nations, institutions as the center of global governance. And we measure the influence that a country has in diplomacy by the extent to which it has voting rights, shares, seats, and influence within those bodies. And what we missed is that in the last 30 years, Asians have basically been saying, well, why don't we just build our own institutions? And this goes back to the post-Asian financial crisis kind of landscape. So what I wanted to show you here is this sort of Venn diagram of Asian uh, um, uh, sets of, of institutions and organizations. You've got the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership I mentioned earlier, ASEAN in the middle, and on the left, um, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which was founded by China. It is the fastest growing multilateral institution in world history, probably by, by far. There's way too many members for me to even fit inside that circle. You have uh, strange, you know, it, the Asian store participating in Asian infrastructure finance and benefiting from the trade linkages with Asia is such a compelling proposition that countries as far afield as Iceland and Chile and so forth have been joining the AIIB, even though they're nowhere near Asia. And uh, that tells you something about how Asians are able to simply take the template of historical experience and the codes of conduct and the legal kinds of frames that help to uh, that serve as the foundation for Western slash global institutions and simply borrow that, import that, and build Asian institutions uh, instead. And I see that as a part of this process of Asians rapidly building their confidence. So I'll I'll start to wind down just with a couple of. Um, you know, historical and geopolitical points. Uh, the first is that, as I said at the very beginning, um, you know, this is not the first period of history where Asia has been a system. And if you go back to the pre-colonial world, and this was for me the most fascinating part of, of my research because I'm not a historian, um, you know, historians use this term Afro-Eurasia describe the 15th and 16th centuries of trade patterns and linkages that brought together the 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 sort of component uh, terms uh, within this word Afro-Eurasia, Africa, Europe, Asia. And so there was this Afro-Eurasian world that was 
most of the world in terms of global uh, demographics and trade uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries. And in many ways, what's happening uh, with Belt and Road, with the AIB, um, uh, with this sort of you know, Asia outbound globalization is the reconstitution of this Afro-Eurasian Afro uh, world. So for those who like to see the echoes and parallels of history, I'm far more inclined to you know, urge you to study this period of history from the Asian point of view than to make your predictions about the future of the world based on the prism of our conventional IR theories that are rooted in about 250 years of uh, you know, Western European experience, right? That doesn't tell you a whole lot about how Asians have interacted with each other uh, over time. Um, I'm going to just skip over just to the final point here about the kind of global structure. You know, I wanted to emphasize, and this is, a, as James pointed out, in some of the European editions of this book, they added a question mark, and in others, uh, they didn't. You know, and it seems to indicate or denote the difference between a confident appraisal of Asia versus a more sort of hesitant one. At no point, though, did I want to imply that, you know, the rise of Asia, whether it continues along its current trajectory uh, or not, uh, would represent a, a, a substitution of the West. You know, I've argued now going back uh, to 2007, you know, 2008, that we are entering a very unique period of history in which you have a fairly permanent uh, multipolar structure uh, to the world. You know, again, the rise of China does not mean that the United States is no longer superpower. Uh, you still have an Atlantic world. You have a, an American system, a European system, and an Asian system. You have, you've never, we've never had a landscape where all continents and regions of the world were simultaneously important, not equally important. We still have a world of, of hierarchies uh, of power, you know, right? Africa and South America are not as important as, uh, say, you know, Europe and Asia. But we have a world of sort of uh, free and voluntary relations amongst all the regions of the world. And that, that's what I'm depicting here with these circles and the connections between them. So to me, what's truly unique about the 21st century that, that, isn't, that doesn't really have a historical uh, parallel is this truly global and distributed multipolar uh, system in which even though you have hierarchy, you don't actually have uh, a structure of a colonial hegemony or imperial global imperial hegemony where one power sits at the center and orders the relations of the others such as you've had as recently as into the 20th century instead i've left the center of the circle basically empty right as it should be it doesn't mean it's an apolar world it doesn't mean it's a g0 world right there are very clear power centers in the world but they're all able to determine who they're going to engage with and no one can really stop them from doing so so regionalism we come back to regions as I said at the beginning, regions matter a lot. There's a very strong regional gravity. To the extent that there is any so-called deglobalization, it is a retrenchment into optimizing activity within these regions, which simply reinforces the fact that actually regionalism is an important stepping stone and, and a big part of globalization. Now, two of these regions that matter uh, a lot in the world are East Asia and West Asia, and they're both Asian regions. So there is, again, a certain um, uh, gravity uh, or growing gravity to the role of Asia collectively in this system, even as East and West Asia still are not as integrated uh, fully. But that's that's happening more and more. You can see this in the behavior of Russia, of Turkey, of Saudi Arabia. These are three countries that had Western leanings in a way or orientation strategically owing to colonialism or their desire to join 
Western institutions. Think about Turkey and its application to join the European Union. If you look at Turkey today, this is not exactly a candidate to join the European Union, right? Turkey is now just as likely to drop out of NATO and join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, as it is to stay within NATO. So in the last 25 years, some of the major swing states that are lie in between Europe and Asia, again, Turkey, uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, Russia are leaning ever more uh, to the East rather than the West. But to me, in this geopolitical uh, multipolar landscape, it's not really about which single power uh, dominates. It's much more about being a, uh, a, a resource provider, a utilities provider in what I've called the, the geopolitical marketplace. You know, we tend to say, well, you know, the United States still has the largest, most powerful military. It still has the exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar. Still has very large tech companies and 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 so forth. And therefore, it's number one. The way I view it is that pretty much all of these uh, uh, measurements or factor endowments of power are more or less commoditized. Right? We live in a world with three hundred trillion dollars of financial uh, assets, mostly debt. You know, we have more or less infinite liquidity that that anyone country that is capable of doing so can lend to others. We have many nuclear powers in the world and strong militaries that can engage in alliance relationships and support and sell uh, weapons to each other. Technology has become a commodity, right? It certainly isn't just what comes out of Silicon Valley. So you can get your Huawei 5G or your you know WeChat ecosystem or your payments platform from any number of vendors. It doesn't have to be uh, the United States or even necessarily just China. So to me, finance, a military uh, a partnership, uh, technology, and other sorts of uh, goods are, in a way, commodities that powers have to compete to supply, compete to provide in this geopolitical uh, uh, marketplace. And that, to me, is the correct way to understand how geopolitics is unfolding. It's not an either-or kind of world where either you choose China or you choose America. This is the new landscape, and it's something that is uh, fundamentally new. And Asia's role... I sort of strive to point out is not to displace the system, not to build a new system around it, but simply to take its kind of rightful place in a world that was dominated by Europe in the 19th century, dominated America in the, in the 20th century, and now in the 21st century of a truly multipolar world, and Asia will coexist in a way with those traditional power centers. So it's one of these kind of buckle up sorts of moments because you can't really, um, you know, make your future predictions based on, you know, narrow uh, Western European experience. You have to think much more broadly and integrate the Asian uh, past and, and the Asian story in a way uh, into your forecasts uh, of the future. And so I leave it in some ways uh, open-ended, but uh, in a way there's a consistency to still believing that a globalization is going to be as strong as ever because you have more power centers than ever, all of which see certain benefit in engaging with each other for different uh, purposes. But I know we can have a much longer debate and conversation this evening about what the competing ambitions are uh, of, uh, of, of leading powers in the world. Um, they're obviously, they're, they're divergent political systems and so forth. So I really look forward to that uh, part of the conversation to begin right now. I want to thank you again. Thank you, James. Thank you all for being here this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. That was very informative, I think, for all of us.
Um, one thing you touched on uh, sort of close towards the beginning was the RCEP or the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership deal for which our Prime Minister Scott Morrison has been in Thailand this week to negotiate. That deal has been in development for about seven years, I believe. And as you mentioned, India have now said they're out. And I'm just wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on what some of India's concerns are. Well, first of all, again, trade liberalization in Asia and globally is an incremental process. It doesn't depend anymore only on a WTO kind of reform. You know, we haven't had a new WTO round in, in a couple of decades at this point. And it doesn't depend only on the RCP because even all RCP members are negotiating with each other to deepen trade bilaterally. So I don't view this as sort of a devastating blow, right? Trade within Asia is going to continue to grow no matter what. And even from the Indian standpoint, India's calculation was that it still has, uh, you know, it has a very large trade deficit um, with China and with Southeast Asian uh, countries. And the reciprocal liberalization that was um, that it had hoped for with RCP wasn't really going to happen because RCP doesn't cover services and services like software services. Think about TCS. You probably have a TCS building here in Sydney, right? Um, uh, are the largest you know, sort of most profitable component of India's exports. So if services are not covered and India signs RCEP, it's going to wind up simply having a larger deficit than it already has with its neighbors. So they sort of backed out. But but at the same time, as Modi himself said, they look forward to deepening their trade with all other Asian countries through bilateral or sub-regional negotiations that would include services and therefore benefit India more. So, you know, we, we often make the mistake in global governance of conflating an institution with the issue. If the WTO disappeared tomorrow, you'd still have trade, right? If the UN Security Council disappeared tomorrow, you'd still have alliance relationships and negotiations over um deployment of peacekeepers and so forth. So never confuse one negotiation or organization with the much broader set of issues that, that it purports to represent. These organizations actually play a much lesser role than one thinks. Another thing you touched on, and I've, I've heard you speak about it before, is that you're much less concerned about China's imperialist ideals than a lot of other people. But here in Australia, we talk a lot and we hear a lot about Chinese developments in the South Pacific and the small island nations, Vanuatu in particular at the moment. As that doesn't fit in with the Belt and Road aspect of China's ambitions. What do you think that expansion into the South Pacific is about? Well, in a way it does in the sense that we often forget, and I certainly, you know, mistakenly sort of elided here that that uh, that Belt and Road is equal parts maritime and terrestrial, right? So the 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 uh, it's even in built into the Chinese phrasing of the term, there's the terrestrial part and the maritime uh, component of it. So those those ambitions are there, those relationships are those countries are participants, uh, many of them in Belt and Road. They've either seen it in their interest or they've been financially, you know, or diplomatically co-opted into it, whatever the case may be. To some degree, it's, you know, again, in some countries in the Indian Ocean, the South Pacific, it may be related to trade, but it's most certainly also has a dual use characteristic, right? Of, you know, military uh, potential. It could be that it's about expanding a port infrastructure and deepening it. So, you know, we often forget that China has been very important in the uh, management of the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, and actually with its uh, oil and gas exploration activities worldwide is part of the reason why 
oil and gas prices have come down so much is because of Chinese capital and Chinese state-owned energy companies going into and developing these global energy assets. Now, it's a separate issue if we think it's a good thing for the climate. Obviously, it's not. But the point is, in terms of building infrastructures that enhance the and, and, and make more friction-free global, global trade, that's part of what China is doing with the maritime belt and road uh, uh, projects. When it, and again, there are military dimensions to it. If you think of both the South China Sea and the South Pacific, clearly, it's... Um, it's 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 um it's what I call use it or lose it, um, you know, strategy. I, I did a chapter of a previous book about this. I said basically China is looking at these geographies that have you know South China Sea islands that no one has used or claimed that have a u- utility, especially given the hydrocarbon resources that are that are below or the ability to use them to protect uh, overseas supply chains. It says no one's been using it, so we're going to use it. It's use it or lose it. You know, and and the de facto control over those assets matters more to them than, than the de jure, uh, you know, negotiation or, or or demarcation of of who owns them. Um, I would say that you know there we often forget when we observe this Chinese activity that we have a certain agency here. You know, if you think about Sri Lanka, uh, Indians have been kicking themselves for more than a decade because that Hambantota port project that I alluded to uh, earlier that China had financed and then Sri Lanka was going to default on some debt. So it leased that port to China for 99 years. That project was offered to India 10 years ago. And in typical Indian fashion, they just sort of, you know, circled around in New Delhi and never did anything about it. So the first thing that Prime Minister Modi did upon his re-election earlier this year was to go to Sri Lanka and say, we're your brothers, we're your friends. If you need money, if you need infrastructure, um, you know, come to us, don't come to China, right? And so overnight, in a way, these grand visions attributed to China, but that China may or may not sort of hold, but certainly we have presumed the worst that, you know, uh, China seeks to re- restore the Ming dynasty and have treasure fleets, you know, across the Indian Ocean. That all came to naught overnight, overnight. All it took was a bad press over one port deal and Modi getting reelected in India to rip up these, you know, huge, you know, visions and, and, and dystopian sort of visions. So we, we forget that we have agency in this, you know, you can work with those governments as, as we're doing. So, you know, Australia and New Zealand, the United States are partnering in Papua New Guinea to do, to, you know, do infrastructure projects that China would otherwise have done and so forth. So it's not just up to China, what happens in terms of its relations across uh, this region. It's, it's very much up to you and to those governments as well. But it would be very hard for Vanuatu, for an example, to reject very lucrative offers of development projects. Well, it depends, again, because we have this historical learning that we forget. These are not necessarily just transactions that are, um, you know, sort of... um, occurring today without the benefit of understanding you know the past uh, kind of kind of experience and that's why you've had these countries in Southeast Asia and Central Asia rapidly going back to China and renegotiating saying actually we don't want to be caught in this debt trap we don't want to become your wholly owned subsidiary right we don't want to um, you know sort of uh, uh, relive the the uh, British colonial uh, experience and countries are again tacitly watching each other it's not an accident that within about six months 
months of the Hamantota port fiasco, you had countries as far as East Africa and Central Asia and Mongolia and Myanmar going back to China and saying, we need to renegotiate things. We've seen what just happened in Sri Lanka. And what I said at the time is the reason you're not going to have another Sri Lanka-like situation is because Sri Lanka happened. And this is what I mean about feedback loops. You know, So when you look at a case like a Vanuatu, you, you know, what they should be saying is, oh, hold on, let's look at what just happened in the Maldives, right? And, uh, and, and how that country is also taking on too much debt to China, um, you know, signing up to projects it doesn't need, mm-hmm. right? And at terms that it could get far more favorably from other powers. And so those countries need to be educated into how they could make smarter decisions in their own best interests while also still getting the infrastructure that they, that they may very well need. And just one final question from me. One thing that I don't think we've really touched on is the social butting of heads, if you like. So how in this Asian future are sort of Western liberal ideals going to fit alongside, you know, censorship in China, gender-based violence in India, what's happening in Hong Kong, all these very strong social issues that really go against a lot of what we in the West I think, you know, when you look at most Asian countries, they they don't for, I mean, let me just make a, a macro point first. One of one of the key things or in misunderstandings in in Western countries, I would say outside of Australia, but in the geographic West about Asia, is that Asia is this monolithic Chinese sphere of influence, and it's kind of a you know a, a big authoritarian block. But remember that more people in Asia live in democracies than not. Right. I mean, earlier this year, we had elections in India, in Indonesia, in the Philippines. That right there is 1.8 billion people, leaving aside Japan and South Korea and yourselves and New Zealand. Right. So Asia is uh, largely populated by democracies, and most of the citizens and residents of this Asian region live in democratic societies with democratic culture. They may not be the most um, sort of, you know, um, uh, well-respected and sort of pedigreed, uh, you know, procedural democracies, electoral democracies or liberal democracies, but they are democracies. So it's important not to, when we talk about governance in Asia, not to begin the conversation with China. I, I actually sort of, you know, I try even just as a rhetorical device to reject the way in which we do this because every time, you know, we have a conversation, so let's talk about governance in Asia. China is authoritarian. It's like, so what? So what? There's more, far more people in democracies in Asia than there are in China. So why are we talking about China? When you see how China treats its citizens and when you see what they do with social credit and surveillance, and so forth, do you want to live in China? Right. The more China acts like the China that we don't want to see China become like, the more other countries will want to preserve the non-Chinese democratic systems that they have. Right. We have to absolutely remember that. We have agency in this. This is not a Chinese region. This is Asia. Right. So let me just emphasize that the by the law of numbers and history and culture and and political systems, this is not a uh, authoritarian region. It's not China is an authoritarian country. Absolutely, it is. But this is a much more diverse region in terms of political systems. What they do have in common, though, is the desire for better governance, right? And if that means becoming a more of an electoral democracy, a le- liberal democracy, you know, sort of having the trappings of democracy and liberalism and rule of law, great. Generally speaking, what, of course, Asian countries want is to sustain their economic growth and, you know, the the benefits in terms of improved standard of living and welfare for their people. And the factor that correlates most to that outcome is rule of law, not so much democracy. And that, of course, China proves that point, as do other countries in Asia. So do countries undertake the kinds of reforms consistent with rule of law? Yes, we see more of that. I have a, if the, if the slide deck is still up, um, 
there's a slide for everything. Well, here you go. So just to be as, as um, quote unquote impartial as possible, I took only the surveys and data from the World Bank and from, the, from, from Freedom House and from the Economist uh, Intelligence Unit. So entirely Western organizations. And I looked at their rankings of Asian countries according to whether their government capacity is improving. Are they becoming better governed countries? And are they becoming more inclusive? And inclusiveness can mean allowing more political parties, having more free and fair elections, and all sorts of other metrics of uh, sort of, you know, general social freedom. And as you can see, with very, very few exceptions that are more or less very episodic anomalies like a coup in Thailand or the, uh, you know, the, the sort of corruption scandals in Malaysia. What you see here is that the arrows are moving up and to the right, by and large. Asian societies, according to Western metrics, are becoming better governed. They're more effective governments with higher state capacity. State capacity is a fancy way of saying, can you deliver basic services to your people? right? The things that really constitute being a functional state to begin with. And inclusiveness can be democratic characteristics. You can see the evidence right here that Asians are getting better at governing themselves in ways that we would say are consistent with the rule of law and, and electoral democracy and liberalism. They may not be getting there as fast as we would like. China is certainly not going there anytime fast or, or at all, but most of Asia is. So it should not, even the very question should not be phrased as, um, you know, us versus them, our Western liberal systems and their authoritarianism. The truth is that there is a lot of convergence going on. And there's a lot of learning going on. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And I, I would say this also, I'll, I'll just make, you know, an anecdotal point about, about living in, uh, in, in Singapore, as I do, and being associated with the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, which is, a, you know, it's kind of like the Kennedy School for Asia, we get plane loads of, uh, of civil servants, of ministers, mayors, uh, bureaucrats from India, from China, from Indonesia, Russia, Kazakhstan, every single week coming in, learning how to better run, you know, how to administratively govern a country, not how to be an authoritarian state how to actually deliver public services and welfare and so forth. And so I see this learning process where countries are saying, I want to have, you know, um, a national health system. I want to deliver health care to all my citizens at as low a price point as possible. Well, how can I learn from what India is doing with telemedicine, right? How can I learn from what... Um, uh, uh, what uh, South Korea is doing with public-private, you know, payments into healthcare or other countries, and that's what's actually happening in Asia—not uh, a black and white sort of, you know, very high-level intellectual uh, kind of uh, uh, conversation or debate or dichotomy. And I think that's the healthy thing that's happening, you know. So I don't think that we should fear this kind of bad authoritarian window. We should certainly fear what China is doing in its country to its own people. Uh, we should look very closely at the technologies that it exports and the practices it may try to export and uh, what impact that may have. But remember, as I said before, in response to your earlier question, we haven't we have a role to play there, there as well, right? But what I see across the board over the last 20 years of backpacking around Asian countries is that everywhere I go, I see leaders, bureaucrats striving to run their countries better than they did a generation ago. If you think about the Asian financial crisis in the 90s, Governments just buried their heads in the sand. They had no idea how to run an economy. You know, today you go to these countries and, and, and below the level of these authoritarian strongmen that we fear, you have a whole stratum 
a large number of professional, often Western trained, young, um, you know, uh, uh, publicly spirited bureaucrats who want to figure out how to get infrastructure done right, how to do an education system well, how to spread broadband internet access, all of these things. And that is the real meat of governance across Asian countries. And they're clearly doing a good job because we can see the results improving. All right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for, all but right, well, uh, I'll hand back over to James. Let me just uh, close by, um, first of all, thanking Siobhan very much. And um, also two people, uh, our project officers, this would not happen without them. Claire Hodson, and usually in the back, and uh, Jose Toyabla, always behind the camera. Uh, I want to thank you both. And of course, our agent provocateur extraordinaire, <laughs> our speaker, Dr. Parakana. And thank you all for coming. I wish you a good evening and um, a peaceful future. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.